Hello, I'm Gary and this is episode 56 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we have a number of very special guests and we'll be conducting a discussion with them about some key topics in the EV space. Yes, it's the second EV Musings Roundtable. Before we start, I just wanted to ask listeners to this podcast to please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are great for the show as they help our rankings in search engines. And I can then invite more and more great guests on the show to talk about things that matter to you. And as if this was a pre-written segue, that brings us on to our main topic of today, the roundtable. Our feature topic today isn't a single feature topic. We're going to be discussing several items of interest to EV drivers in much the same way that we did back in episode 20, where four of us sat in my Kia Soul at a Kent EVs meet and talked about things like free charging and the like. Links to that episode are in the show notes. To help me in this endeavour, I have a number of very special guests, so I'd like to introduce them to you now. Firstly, a returning guest and someone who was in that Kia Soul with me in Kent, Leanne Roberts. Leanne is co-founder of Sussex EVs and part of the steering committee of the EV Group's Nexus. Hello, Leanne. Hello there. And next we have Jill Noel. Passionate about electric vehicles since 2012, Jill is the founder of EV Clicks and a founding director of Electric Vehicle Association England. She also has a day job. Hi, Jill. Hi there, Gary. Hi. Now, another returning guest from our secondhand EVs episode of a few weeks ago. Welcome back, Jonathan Porterfield, owner of ecocars.net and the man who has sold 300 of Orkney's 350 EVs. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome back. Hello, Gary. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Staying in Scotland, we have Heather Kennedy, EV driver for five years, founder of the Scottish EV Drivers Club and the Sustainable Transport Coordinator for Home Energy Scotland, managed by the Energy Saving Trust. Hello and welcome, Heather. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. And finally, but by no means least, we have Dan Caesar. Dan is an EV and clean energy fan and managing director of a little enterprise you may have heard of called Fully Charged. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Gary. Welcome, everyone. We're looking forward, or I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. So let's get right to it. We have a number of topics to discuss today. Each member of our roundtable is going to lead a part of the discussion. And the topics we're going to talk about are EV infrastructure, encouraging EV take up in the general population, what EV models should mainstream dealers be producing, EVA England and how it can help EV drivers, loans and grant funding for sustainable transport, and the future of charging. And because we like to think of ourselves as chivalrous on the show, we are, of course, going to start with ladies first. So can I ask Jill to open the discussion, please? Thanks so much, Gary. So my topic for discussion is Electric Vehicle Association England or EVA England. EVA England was set up as a community interest company in June this year. It is committed to providing a voice for electric vehicle drivers and also prospective electric vehicle drivers in England and it's run by EV drivers, myself included. I'm one of the founding directors. The aims and objectives of EVA England are to promote electric vehicle use in England, also to promote the environmental and health benefits of electric vehicles to the public, to represent the interests of current and prospective electric vehicle drivers and to provide services to EV drivers in England. We really wanted to be effective from the very outset. So one of our first actions was to issue, issue a survey to invite views on the phase-out date of new petrol and diesel cars and vans. 
survey will feed into the government consultation on whether the phase-out date should be brought forward from 2040 to 2035 or even perhaps sooner than 2035. Really encouragingly, we had over 1,100 responses to that survey. I'll be able to reveal some of the results in the course of a discussion, I hope, but I'd like to know what the round table thinks. Should the phase-out date of new sales of petrol and diesel cars and vans be brought forward? And if so, to when? And if that phase-out date is brought forward, could the automotive industry facilitate a phase-out date of, say, 2030 or even earlier? Well, let me start by saying I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's anyone on this call who thinks that the phase-out date should be where it is at the moment. I think we should be bringing it forward. And Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Yeah. I think it's been brought forward by Scotland, isn't it? I think they're, uh, yeah. they're trying, trying to get the uh, head start on UK at the minute, or England rather. So, I mean, me, me personally, the sooner the better. There are, obviously, there are going to be things that need to be in place for that to happen. We've got to make sure that we've got the the infrastructure there. And that's hopefully something that uh, Jonathan's going to talk about uh, in, in a short while. But I think if we can get all the ducks in a row, I don't see any reason why we can't bring it forward to, you know, whatever they're talking about, 2032. Yeah, I think, yeah that's when it is in Scotland, isn't it, I think, actually. Leanne? Um, I personally agree that um, there definitely needs to be more pressure on bringing that date forward. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, how long does a person in the automotive industry stay in the same job? Surely, if we bring that date sooner, then you're going to get more people that need to actually work with that manufacturer to get them producing more EVs, as well as bringing, you know, the phase out date forward. I also think the market will push this or bring this forward as well. I think market forces new and used. People are finally waking up to the fact that EVs are a viable alternative. And I think the date will come sooner for a lot of manufacturers. And once we get to that price parity where you know a mid-sized hatchback is more or less the same price as its diesel equivalent, I think people will just vote with their wallets and will hasten that switch quicker uh, because of market forces. Now, Dan, obviously you're, with the work that you do, you're sort of closer to some of the people who have more of a say in this. What's the general feeling that you're getting um, from the people that you're in contact with? Well, I think most people accept it's going to be moot, uh, the 2035 uh, date. I think for me, 2032 is is still not soon enough. I mean, we're pretty bullish. And prone to upsetting people, uh, but we think this could happen a fair bit quicker. You've obviously got to balance that against how quickly you know industry could deliver it. We have enough infrastructure, etc. But right now, without wishing to kind of mention the the COVID word, there's almost a an opportunity, is there not? And I'm slightly surprised that there hasn't been a scrappage scheme or something like that. It was mooted, but I think it was considered to be too difficult. Uh, and so that hasn't happened. But I think there was an opportunity and that opportunity still exists because I think the consumer, I think their opinions on on what car they drive, if they drive a car at all, has just changed and is in the process of changing very rapidly. Does that indicate that what's underlying this is more of a political decision rather than um, a logistical or a physical decision? I think it's really, really difficult. I do have quite a lot of sympathy for the car companies on one hand, but 
but on the other hand they have to be kind of pushed forward you know this this is an industry that that had to be kind of prodded on seat belts for example you know they're not necessarily going to want to to move in this direction you can completely understand that they've got to get a lot of ducks in a row and it is very very difficult but at the same time you know if you want to be a leader and you want to seize the moment i think there's an opportunity for for uk to kind of really kind of go for it and um as ever uh, the scottish are a bit ahead of the english mm. is there a danger that we're going to have a lack of joined up thinking definitely <laughs> yeah i think i think there is for, for sure i i think it you know with any kind of political decision and i've been fortunate enough to do some lobbying uh, over the years, you know, it tends to be who who shouts loudest. And I think in, in, in the UK, particularly in England at the moment, car companies will, will be in a lot of pain. And no one no one underestimates how, how bad that is. But at the same time, there is a there is a great opportunity to push back and say, look, you know, there's a there's a, there's a chance here for the UK to 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 be a leader in some of these things, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, batteries or or, or vehicle manufacturer uh, componentry, etc. So I think it is is a time to be brave, and I think sometimes you know you could you know again I'm really trying to steer away from politics, but you might argue that quite often what you see from the London-based government is is the kind of uh, classic you know decision by committee, you know, and uh, um, a horse designed by committee as a camel. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen a lot of. And I think just being bold and, and, and leading is is really, really important. And I think UK has quite a good opportunity still. I don't think it's too late for us to, to play a leading role in this sort of thing. Uh, and there was some rumours, wasn't there, flying around about bringing forward the date and plus a scrappage scheme. And obviously there was the green number plate story as well and then the number plate story came out before anything else and you then that kind of sounded like there wasn't a lot of joined up thinking going on straight straight away and that story keeps returning the one about the green number plates keeps returning it's easy to have a photograph next to a green number plate (laughs) (laughs) i could be cynical you know that that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that it, it is easy to kind of show you know show pro progress I actually think that there's some pros and cons to that. I'm sure, you know, I'm talking to fellow people who are passionate about EVs and we can all see the pros and the cons of of that particular approach. But Mm. um, it's actually relatively superficial compared to some of the other things that we could be doing right now. Totally agree. Jill? Yeah, I just want to pick up on, um, on a word that Dan used a few moments ago, and that is the word bold, because one of the respondents to EVA's EVA England survey on the phase out date was be bold and everyone will ben- will benefit. And I think that's really, really nice. And just pick out another, an, a couple of other quotes, actually. One of the other participants, well, sorry, um, respondents said, you know, we cannot wait any longer for clean air in our towns and cities. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's so true as well, isn't it? When we consider that poor air quality, which is largely attributable to uh, road transport emissions, um, is responsible for about 40,000 premature deaths every year in the UK. So, you know, that is significant, um, clearly. Um, and it's a real imperative uh, as to why we need to make this transition as soon as possible. If I could just uh, go on to some of the, the really headline findings from the survey that we put out. So 96% of respondents to EVA England survey believe that an earlier phase-out date would have a positive impact on public health. So that's 96% of respondents. And then 64% of all survey 
participants believe that the phase-out date should be moved to 2030. So again, that's really quite um, you know interesting to have found out through this survey, and that's something, um, of course, that we'll be feeding back into government. Is there a case to say that the message that the government should be giving as a sort of an impetus for this is the health message rather than, for example, the um, environmental message? Because you know when people hear electric cars, they think you know there's an environmental impact on that, a positive one. Whereas if we t- if we were to say well, no, actually, one of the main issues is air quality. And by going to electric cars, that's going to improve air quality. Is, is there a case to say that, you know, the government using that as the um, the focus would have more impact than the environmental focus? I think, I think it can only help, Gary, in that, of course, the pandemic has really raised the issue of improved, you know, the benefits of improved air quality. It's been visible for us all to see. Um, However, I think one of the core messages in terms of encouraging people to switch to electric cars is that actually they're a better car to drive, you know, and I feel that still it's that message as well that is going to encourage more and more people to make the switch. They're, you know, they're superior vehicles to drive, um, you know, almost in every way, I'd say. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, bring up on this particular topic? I'd just like to say that, um, you know, look out for the summary report of the survey and um, and we'll be releasing uh, more results uh, in the coming days and weeks. Fantastic. Leanne, can you lead us through your topic then, please? Yes, Gary. So um, the increase in EV uptake is most certainly going in the right direction. But as owners, we all know there's still a long way to go before we see a significant decrease of fossil fuel vehicles being used for personal transport. How can we encourage more car drivers to switch to electric? And should the government be doing more to increase EV uptake in private and commercial vehicles? Should they be putting pressure on manufacturers to phase out diesel and petrol models? I shall pass that out to the table. <laughs> well, there is a large overlap, obviously, between that yeah. and the discussion that we've we've just had. But from an actual logistical point of view, uh, we've always said on the podcast, the easiest way to get people into an electric car is to physically get somebody to sit in and drive an electric car. And I don't think there's enough of that going on. I think, you know, places like the EV Experience Centre in Milton Keynes are fantastic because you can get in there, you can, you know, do a 20 minute drive, you can borrow one for a couple of days, but there just aren't enough places like that around the country where people who are curious can actually physically sit in there and drive one. Because as, as Jill quite rightly says, one of the best ways to sell these is on the fact that they're a superior car to just about anything else that's on the road. So the more we can get people into them, the better it's going to be. I find as well that uh, people that do become EV drivers, they become real advocates themselves. And they'll talk to family members and neighbours and the neighbours will will look at their new leaf or whatever sitting on the drive and sneer and say, well, how long does the extension lead? You know, and 12 months later, they chat with the neighbour and the neighbour says it's absolutely brilliant. And the neighbour realises that he's never actually run out. And I think word of mouth is such a powerful thing Mm -hmm. to get people over that mental block of the fact that they're going to drive down the road and run out and it could take 26 hours to recharge. And that's still something Mm -hmm. that I hear regularly. But word of mouth is such a powerful incentive for people rather than the government waving a big financial stick 
Heather, you've been a bit quiet on this. Do you have any um, anything to <laughs> yeah, say? I was just, I was, yeah, I was just going to actually say, um, it's actually, I ended up getting into EV driving about five years ago. And my dad was, he was like, what is that? You know, and my brother, I took him for a test drive and I think within a few weeks, he bought a Renault Zoe the same as me. <laughs> and um, so from there, I ended up obviously getting into the Energy Saving Trust and running the Scottish EV Drivers Club to try and encourage more uptake um, of EVs. But what Jonathan's actually had a few events where um, that I've organised as well to try and get bums on seats, so to speak, um, just to encourage the uptake of it. Because everybody says the only way really to alleviate people's fears of these vehicles is actually to get them to have a shot of them. Once they sit in that car, they are going to change their mind about them. So It very much links into our own story where the first we knew of the Nissan Leaf was uh, when my brother actually got a 24 kilowatt hour Accenter and he he was raving about it. So we went up to we went up to visit him up in Yorkshire and he let Neil sit in one and took him out for a drive. And after that, Neil was sold pretty much as simple as that. It's just getting into the car and driving it, as you say, uh, makes all that difference. And then when we looked at the financials, uh, it was perfectly affordable. And also my brother was doing trips from Yorkshire down to Sussex, despite it taking a long time and proving it could be done. Uh, Now that you've touched on a a topic which a lot of people are going to use as a stick to beat EV drivers, which is the cost. Now, there is a perception, rightly or wrongly, that they are way too expensive. Now, I think in the episode of the podcast that was released today, uh, as we're, which is the Monday, the whatever it is, 28th, I do go through um, a number of calculations to say, well, no, they are more expensive if you're comparing an EV in a particular range like the Mini with the bottom of the range mini but it's not a like for like comparison so is there a case to say we need some sort of education to go to people and say no if you're looking at the electric version of a similar petrol model then the price differential isn't actually as big as you think it is yes i i would certainly agree with that and i think there's a lot of mindset that people think that they've got to buy their cars outright when they get them as well and wouldn't necessarily look at PCP or leasing or anything like that. And I think that's certainly where there does need to be a change of mindset. Dan, one of the other things that I think plays into this is the mainstream dealers and how they deal with it, you know, trying to sell, you know, when you go into a a mainstream dealer, would they necessarily focus on selling the electric version of a Kona, for example, because I believe there's the uh, non-electric version, the hybrid version, or not. What What's your feeling from the discussions that you're having with manufacturers about how their mindset's changing on that sort of thing? I think it is changing, but I don't think it's reached the dealerships yet at all. So on this on this panel, you've got. I mean, I'm going to be the one upset so everyone. I can see this straight away. I'm the, the, the shock jock on this uh, on this uh, particular uh, podcast, Gary. But you know, you've got on one hand on this panel, you've got Jonathan, who is like. The kind of the hero, a person who will absolutely advocate for for EV, uh, and then you've got the opposite of that going on in pretty much every kind of main dealership around the the, the country with 
a few, you know, shiny exceptions. There's a guy we know who runs the MG dealership in in Chorley, and he's really kind of pro pro EV. Some of you might even even know him. But those kind of people are kind of, you know, they glitter amongst the chicken feed. Really, they don't want to sell um, electric vehicles particularly. And so there's some better talk coming from the headquarters of the car companies, but not really seeing that kind of translated on the dealerships. I mean, I think your panels hit a lot on the two things that are the most important, which is getting people in them and familiar with them. And, and the other thing is to, is to make them realize that it isn't necessarily extraordinary. But the one other thing I would say to court further controversy is that on that adoption curve, there are plenty of people Googling environmentally friendly cars right now. Uh, and some of them are being confronted with adverts for self-charging hybrids. Take them straight a pure electric vehicle, which I don't think is impossible, then that will have a huge impact. At the moment, there is some real mealy-mouth marketing going on. Can I just back up what Dan said? I've sold a Nissan Leaf today that's physically with me here in on Orkney to a lady who lives in Rotherham. And every weekend she went to a local Nissan dealer to test drive the old shape Nissan Leaf. And she said her words, she waited half an hour to be seen then when they finally bought the car around, the salesperson um, knew absolutely nothing about electric vehicles. She says, I knew more than they did. And she had a go in it, just, but there was no way I was going to give them my business because they just didn't know what they were talking about. And that was just today. So, yeah, the, the ignorance within dealerships, franchise dealers, most of which are independently owned, is jaw-droppingly ignorant or they're just not bothered. And that's still very relevant, sadly. Jill? Yeah, I was just, um, again, wanting to echo what uh, what Dan and, and Jonathan and, and others have said. My own experience, um, I needed to find a, I was in the market for a secondhand electric car about 18 months ago, looking. Had I not known who to speak with, I think I had a chat with you, Jonathan, if I remember, but then Matt Cleveley at Cleveley EV, you know, and clearly such knowledgeable people so genuinely passionate about electric cars and they they found you know what I needed a secondhand Nissan Leaf had I not known who to engage with then I would have been in real difficulty you know and then I speak to people um, and this is purely anecdotal but somebody I spoke to recently said oh yeah but I had a drive in an electric car and it was rubbish and I said well what was that and they said oh it was a Toyota Auris that wasn't actually an electric car oh well they told me it was you know it just goes to show doesn't it and they didn't tell them how much co2 it puts out compared to a one litre petrol so i've got a wee kind of um thing so part of our job this year um is going to be so have you heard of the electric vehicle approved scheme that the Energy Saving Trust or the Office of Low Emission Vehicles are running. No. So I don't know whether it's just a Scotland thing at the moment. So it was launched in May 2019. So basically there's 50 dealerships that's been approved at the moment and they get a badge. They go through training and things like that and then they have to um, be approved basically to say they learned everything about selling these vehicles. So this is going to be a, a good thing, I think, this year. Certainly in Scotland, that's obviously what I'll be dealing with. Uh, yes, audited by the Energy Saving Trust. So uh, I definitely think that would be a good thing to help dealerships try and 
sell these vehicles, you know, without with the knowledge. No one, I know myself when I bought my first car, they didn't have a clue. Um, and that's what we're finding a lot when people join our club as well. They don't actually know what chargers they were meant to have. They don't, they're not told about where to charge, how to charge, that sort of thing. So hopefully that will come in and it will, it will help um, drivers in the future. I mean, there is anecdotal stories of, you know, I-PACE drivers who pull up to a, a rapid charger and then plug in on the AC because nobody's actually told them that, no, you can actually use the uh, the CCS on this and it will give you, you mm. know, a much faster charge. And that's that's purely down to education at the uh, yeah. at the dealership level. I'm just thinking, Heather, is it uh, – no, let me go back. Leanne, are, are you comfortable we've covered the topics you want to do? Do we want to hand over to Heather? Um, I think so, yes. So, um, Heather, we'd be very interested to hear what uh, you're bringing to the table today. Yeah. So, um, basically, what I've got to talk about today is grants and loans that's available through, uh, it's called Home Energy Scotland. Um, we're a network of local advice centres, cover the whole of Scotland. Um, we have expert advisors who offer free impartial advice on energy saving, keeping warm at home, renewable energy, greener travel and cutting waste uh, and water and things like that as well. We're funded by the Scottish Government and managed by the Energy Saving Trust. And the mission uh, we have is to help people in Scotland create warmer homes, reduce their bills and help tackle climate change. So I deal with the a business sustainable transport side of things um, but we have a number of grants and loans that are available throughout Scotland to help the uptake of uh, electric vehicles, e-bikes and things like that as well. The domestic um, customers, the loan funding um, and grants are via the Home Energy Scotland number and I can give that out if anybody's interested in that later on. We have an interest-free electric vehicle loan that's funded by Transport Scotland. Um, they offer drivers in Scotland loans of up to 35000 and that's to cover the cost of purchasing a new pure electric vehicle. We also have up to £10,000 to cover the cost of uh, purchasing a new electric motorcycle or scooter. Um, that's over six years as well. The... Vehicles must be eligible for the plug-in grant. So that's just a new thing this year. Um, so that means that cars with a purchase value over 50,000 and plug-in hybrids are not eligible anymore for it. So we have also uh, the domestic charge point grant. I know down in England you have the one for the Office of Low Emission Vehicles. Um, up in Scotland, we have an extra £300 uh, funding on top of that through the Energy Saving Trust. So it's, it's a good um, amount to, towards putting a charge point in in your home. We have, um, we don't obviously just encourage customers to change to EVs. We want to discuss, um, try and get customers uh, into more sustainable transport. So we have e-bike loans as well. Um, we have uh, an e-bike loan up to £6,000. That's over four years, uh, interest-free. Um, we also offer e-bike trials but at the moment those are because of COVID those have been um, put on hold but that's certainly something if anybody in Scotland is interested in um, to give Home Energy Scotland a call that's a free trial. So the business side of things is what I deal with. Um, we have sustainable transport reviews that we can do fleet reviews for somebody that's got one vehicle in their fleet to somebody that's got 500 um, we can 
work out the best solutions for them um, to whether to downsize their fleet, whether to change to electric vehicles and um, that sort of thing as well. We've got um, funding sources to help with that as well. We've got the low carbon transport business loan. That's very similar to the domestic e-bike loan, but you can borrow up to £120,000 um, per business as well. Um, that can also be used for things like telematic systems and video teleconferencing facilities. We have e-bike business loans as well. So you get a wee bit more for, for a business that's up to 30,000 available. And low carbon hackney cab loan, we've got interest free loans up to £120,000 to help customers change from an old Euro 5 uh, diesel to a Euro 6. And that's just to help with our low emissions loans that's uh, going to be uh, happening here in Scotland. So there's other things as well. We've got business charge point grant funding. Um, there's At the moment, there's businesses are eligible for up to 50% funding. That's capped at 25,000. And public sector organisations are eligible for full funding up to 100,000. So, so we've got lots and lots of grants and funding available up here. So I'd love to see that down in, in England as well at some point. Scotland leading the way. Come on. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I have I have just had a look on the English side actually and it's nowhere near. I know. It's it's very disappointing. And to think that we are supposed to be in inverted commas a United Kingdom, and yet some some countries seem to be able to do it so much better than others within the UK. And I must say I'm very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I can't see it encouraging people on low incomes to mm -hmm. spend money to make these um, changes to their home energy, to their transport, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and to businesses as well. The fact that you're offering it to businesses, I mean, businesses mm -hmm. in England would seriously take up an offer like that, especially when yeah. it comes to things like charge points in their premises. Yeah. There were two things that came up when you talked about it. You've already addressed one, which is, you know, Scotland are doing it. Why aren't the rest of the UK? <laughs> I know. But, the other, but the other question that came up in my mind is, you know, how many people know about the loans and the grants that are available? Because here in the UK, sorry, here in England, as you say, we've got the uh, Office of the Low Emission Vehicles and they will give you the plug-in car grant and the amount mm. of money for um, the charges, but the number of people who actually know about that before they go and buy a car is minimal. So, you know, what sort of uptake are you getting on these kind of loans in, in Scotland? Um, I don't have figures off the top of my head. Certainly, the beginning of lockdown, we were really quiet with EV loans, but the e-bike loan has more than tripled. Um, with it's just overtaken everything. <laughs> um, I think so so far that the, a lot of the e-bike shops have sold out <laughs> but yeah it's certainly, certainly picking up now with the, the electric vehicle loan and I think with the benefit and time changes in April as well it's certainly um, it's encouraged a lot more businesses to change um, as well. If I, if I could just ask Heather a, a question I know yeah. the Scottish Energy Saving Trust were talking about this interest-free loan over six years being extended to used vehicles now yeah. I don't know if it's new or x demo up to six months mm -hmm. old or six thousand miles but they, they did actually get in touch with me all oh, best part of a year ago asking my thoughts and i think 
for those on lower incomes that don't want mm-hmm. to borrow, you know, up to thirty-five thousand, perhaps want to borrow ten, an interest-free loan for them on a used EV would be absolutely brilliant. Have you heard any more news, Heather, about that possibly happening? I haven't heard a thing, Jonathan, at all. It certainly was talked about last before the beginning of last financial year, but there's been absolutely nothing about it. And I really do think it would help a lot of people because it still is expensive for you know some people and some of the vehicles are still, you know, 30, 40,000. And it's just, yeah, I think it would be good to actually get that in. But at the moment, I haven't heard anything about it at all. So, so it's great in Scotland, but it's not absolutely perfect yet. So we've got a bit of work to do. I do. I, I actually have some of the customers have, uh, when they phone in, they actually have said that the dealership have put them on to us and told them about the loan. So that's really good oh, to hear that some of the dealerships are, you know, taking it on board and, and not just plugging their own loans and things. So, yeah. I've, I've had people from the north, like Berwick, and on just the other side of the border in England, asking me whether they qualify for the Scottish Energy Saving Trust. Yeah. <laughs> and I've just had to oh. and say, well, unless you actually physically live in Scotland, then no, you can't. So even... People in England oh. have heard about this interest-free loan over six years. Yeah. Hmm, interesting because it seems. Still need to lobby. There we go, Jill. Are you ready for that? <laughs> yeah, I was just, uh, yeah, sort of virtually putting my hand up there to say I think we've already learnt actually a lot as, as EVA England from EVA Scotland, yeah. um, because you know they're they're doing so so much good work. Um, on behalf of EV drivers in Scotland, and and we'd love to, um, you know, to to kind of replicate and build on that in England. And I think there's an awful lot of lear- lots that we can learn from you, um, Heather, and, and others in Scotland, and actually other nations as well. So, so mm-hmm. in terms of EVA England, we're really really keen to sort of, you know, those good words around collaboration and partnership. You know, very very keen to do that. Yeah. So Heather, just one final question on this. Where is that funding actually coming from? I mean, obviously it's the government, but is it uh, the so Scot is it from Scottish taxes or what? It's the Scottish government. Um so it's all that is Transport Scotland um is of the transport sort of side of things for the e bikes. Um but it is it's they're, they're part of the Scottish government that's um that's offering the, the money there. So yeah. Okay, fantastic. Jonathan. Yes. Where are we with EV infrastructure? EV infrastructure, it's a little bit like a chicken and egg scenario. You know, one's got to keep up with the other. I used to hear people saying, well, when there's a rapid charger on every street corner, then I'll think about getting an EV. But we all know the reality is that that's just not viable and it's just not needed either. So I think EV infrastructure is keeping up with regard to physical um, machines tech going physically in the ground i think that's progressing well particularly in scotland the things we need to do with regard to infrastructure is how you pay for it having a raft of rfid cars or apps or tags or lifting your left leg up at 45 degrees in order to activate a charge has got to stop and i think leaders such as instavolt where it's just go up with your debit or credit card and waft it in front of the machine and, and use it is the way forward. And I know the government have said any new rapids going in from the beginning of this year have to be contactless payment. So that's great, but obviously we've still got old infrastructure that's got years left life left in it that uh, could do with being converted to contactless payment. 
So that's one thing. I think the other thing is the, at the moment, the CCS debacle with certain makes of Rapids not working on certain vehicles with CCS. I think the manufacturers need to talk to the people that make these machines to, and the manufacturers really ought to test every type of machine from every manufacturer before they release the car to the public. Um, the other big thing is hats off to Ecotricity years ago. When there was no comms, by that I mean communication between the rapid and the operator, communication or comms, with Ecotricity, when there was no comms through no fault of their own, you know, O2 or the Wi-Fi had gone down, their machines would default to free vend, which was brilliant. Now, sadly, with Charge Place Scotland, if there's no comms in the back of beyond of the Highlands, then it, it can sit with no comms and won't give out any electricity until some chap turns up in a van and fixes it. That is really frustrating. So I'm constantly badgering Charge Place Scotland through various channels just to make this whole default to free vend thing the norm. Um, so that's where we are on infrastructure from my point of view. One of the things that comes out of what you've just said, particularly that last point, is the whole area of maintenance of units. Because, you know, if you go on to particularly ZapMap and have a look, you can see instantly which units are out of uh, service. And you you can look and see some of them have been uh, unable to be used for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six months. And there has to be, from my point of view, there has to be some sort of minimum service level, which says that if once a faulty um, charger has been reported, it has to be back up and running within, I mean, pick a figure, 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, the figure's immaterial, as long as that service level agreement is um, is maintained. And it has to be consistent across all chargers and all charging networks. In the early days, when I went down to from... John O'Groats to Land's End and back to John O'Groats with Chris Ramsey back in 2015. Goodness me, that's five years ago in a 24-kilowatt-hour leaf. I should never forget, we went to a place called Pit Lockery on the A9 in the Cairngorms, and the previous person that had used it had tripped the charger, so it just wasn't working. And it had tripped the main fuse, if you like, in, in the box that's at the side of the wall next to the charger. So we did the usual thing rang Charge Place Scotland, they got onto the local council and they said, well, we can send a chap out a week on Tuesday and he'll reset it. So we remonstrated politely and sure enough, there was a, a, a chap about an hour and a half away who worked for the council as a sparky. So they sent him out. So we twiddled the thumbs for an hour and a half and this chap from the council came, opened up this big cabinet with what's called an electronic uh, an electrician's panel key which is just a key with a fancy triangle in the middle. You can buy them from any hardware shop. Opened up the cupboard and turned it back on and shut the cupboard and shook her hands and drove <laughs> off. And we waited an hour and a half for this. <laughs> it was going to be a week on Tuesday before some other technical bloke came. So needless to say, and this is going on the record, I've got myself a little panel key. And I've used it countless times where I've turned up to a charger with no power. I've opened up the box, I've flicked the switch, and it works. Now, when you talk to Charge Place Scotland, ooh, you better not do that. You know, you're going to kill yourself, get electrocuted. We'll send a specialist team out a week on Tuesday to do exactly the same thing. 
<laughs> so that <laughs> greatly. Uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about the future of charging. But one of the things that personally bugs me more than anything else is turning up at a charger and there's one unit and it's in use. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you go to our good friends at Tesla and you turn up at the superchargers and I think the minimum they have at any location is four and the maximum, I forget the exact figure, is it 42 or 44 they've got ne- at Nebenez in, uh, in Norway? You know, I understand the technical limitations of why they would only put one charger in at any location, but Instaval always put two in. And as I said, Tesla always put four plus in. Why can't the others? I think here in Scotland, if it's in the middle of nowhere, there is the aspect of getting enough power to that particular site in order to power it. That can be a huge problem. Helmsdale in particular um, took ages to come online because they needed to physically put extra poles in the ground and carry electricity five miles off the beaten track just to supply this rapid so there is that. What has also been of benefit in Scotland is that various councils who look after Charge Place Scotland public charges, various councils have started introducing a fee, a charge for charging. Now, that particularly here on Orkney has been absolutely brilliant because it's very rare now to see an EV on a rapid charger. Because when it was free... And let's be honest, we all do it. If there's something free, we're going to grab it. So you'd have people who had a had a drive, had solar panels, have the means to charge their own electric vehicle on Orkney. But if it's free, then they will go out their way to plug in to a free because they're getting it for nothing. And that made them feel really smug. Mm. Introduce a fee and I can't remember the last time I saw a car on a charger. They are being used but the amount of use has just dropped off. Mm. So I think charging for charging does help people to realise it's cheaper to charge at home while you sleep. And then for those occasional trips, pull into the motorway services, Ecotricity or Instavolt. And to date, I've not had to queue for a rapid when I've done one of my crazy drives from Leicester to Orkney. So it tends to be locals that will hog rapids if they're free. Dan, you've been quiet so far. Do you have any thoughts on this? No. Uh, (laughs) 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 I I think I've been very blessed because I've been driving EVs for five years. I've had very, very few problems, but I think I suspect Jonathan's done a fair few more miles than I have. (laughs) I've been been very lucky and um, I think a lot's made out of it. And I think that um, I think the infrastructure is is problematic, but I actually think it's a bit better than we sometimes talk about. You know, bad bad news always uh, travels uh, further. It seems. Other than I did send my wife to a, a Tesla uh, place the other day, first time she'd ever sort of ventured long distance uh, on her own, and, and I sent her to one with two stalls. <laughs> Gary, <laughs> they were both busy. So. Mm. So that doesn't exist, but that was a rarity, I think. But I, I, I always think charging's been okay, and I, I think it is getting better. But you know, if you have it, I haven't always had a Tesla. I've had other cars, and and um, I've actually found it relatively easy, and I found it pretty easy on the continent so far as well. So I, I do think we've made a 
bit of a hodgepodge of it in the UK. And I do think it is it's, it's getting sorted. I mean, if you think about it, Jonathan will know better than me, but you know, all the Instabolts springing out up, uh, Ingenio, as the now known Osprey, uh, Ionity, you know, Fastnet. You know, there's a lot more, isn't there, now than there was a couple of years ago, a lot, lot more. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing that we've said several times on this podcast is the charging infrastructure will never be as bad as it is today. It will always get better from today onwards. And mm-hmm. I think that just reflects exactly what you've said there. I think my, my, my point I always make is because we talk about residential charging quite a lot on, on streets without easy, you know, easy to, to get into with infrastructure. I always think we'll end up probably with more infrastructure than we need at some point. I think that's a few years away, but I think that's where we could end up. And I think that's probably what has to happen. But you're going to see this just extraordinary investment in into EV infrastructure. That's already started, but, you know, you can see the lights are going on now with the finance houses, with uh, investments, um, organisations, with, with governments, uh, with charging companies who are seeing the opportunity. Um, so I actually think we'll end up with more, but it, it's still a bit, still a bit frustrating, isn't it? But I, I don't think it's quite as bad as, as people would have you believe, I think um, a TV presenter, uh, Alice Beer, last night was yes. uh, was on on Twitter. Kind of she had a problem with her eye pace. I think she ran out and then she had some some trouble charging. And and these stories always seem to make it straight onto uh, page seven of the uh, the daily reactionary right right wing. Uh, whereas if someone runs out of petrol, it doesn't make the press, does it? And yet that no. happens. <laughs> It's the same as the Tesla battery fires, isn't it? You know, whenever one of those happens, it's sort of front page news. Yeah, Dan, I read lots about the fact that all EVs are big, elitist and expensive. Is that right? That's your cue to go into your little bit, by the way. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, my kind of question really was, how do we kind of get um, manufacturers to, to mainstream EVs? What should they be producing? So I kind of was thinking back and I was thinking back to sort of three years ago when I was planning the first ever fully charged live at that point there were only around 10 EVs that we could construct a show around it was the Leaf and it was the obviously the three Teslas it was the it was the Zoe there wasn't there wasn't a lot to choose from and at that point there were some considerable gaps in in what was available many of those gaps are now catered for um, but some segments remain unaddressed. So really, my question really was to the panel, what, where are the remaining opportunities? When will they be taken and by whom? I can um, sort of uh, interject with that. Um, so there's one particular story of someone that actually quite a few people in the EV world know who lives up in Hull. And he actually had to give up his EMV 200 which he actually required seven seats for um, due to their occupation. I do believe uh, one of them's a childminder. And he had to give it up because of all the issues he had surrounding Rapidgate. And from what we're seeing, bar the Tesla Model X, we are sincerely lacking in a people carrier style vehicle that can hold more than five passengers. Mm-hmm. Although I was just reading literally about an hour ago about the, is it the Mercedes E-Vito, the uh, the new version of that, which is now uh, an eight-seater. But obviously, that's going to have a Mercedes price tag on it. So, I mean, who who is in, who produces an eight-seater that's not an EV that we would like to make into an electric version, which which manufacturers are in that market space at the moment? So I would say Volkswagen and Ford. You've got the S Max with Ford, and Volkswagen have the um, 
is it the Tor? It's not the Toran. It's the the Sharan, isn't it? Or well, they had the Sharan that had um, seven seats, and then of course they've got the more van type vehicles that are very popular amongst uh, taxi drivers in the diesel form. Um, so I do think Ford and Volkswagen could plug that gap, um, and probably other Volkswagen Group who also provide those vehicles. So say at I'm not sure if Skoda have one yet. I, I do feel a certain amount of sympathy for manufacturers because they're going to, yes, they're producing EVs, but they're going to hit the most popular segment first, which has always been small family-sized hatchbacks. And then when you look at people carriers and two-seater sports cars, they're sort of lower on their ranking of, of popularity. So they're not going to push them. They're going to push the ones that are going to sell in volume first to try and get some of their R&D costs back. So it is a bit of a predicament for them. And it is a shame that a lot of these vehicles are diesel as well, but it's the pulling power, I guess, for when you do have a fully loaded car with seven people and luggage. You need that torque, which would be ideal from an electric vehicle because it's there. The other sort of aspect of that when we're talking about the, the pulling power is literally the ability to be able to tow something. Uh, I mean, if you've ever been down the uh, A30 in Cornwall and, and Devon about this time of year, you'll see there's quite a lot of cars towing caravans. And, you know, what I don't think, if you know, if you take away the Model X, there aren't that many vehicle, many electric vehicles that have the ability to tow something like a caravan without a serious impact on the range. Is that right? I think the Nissan ENV 200 you can. I think it's more legally. I think the insurance you're not able to. I think probably some of them could tow, but it's just because of the insurance. But yeah, yeah, definitely more more vehicles that you can tow with. That's an interesting one, Heather. I've sold quite a few ENV 200 vans to farmers here on Orkney, and they've said, yeah. well, can I fit the tow bar? And I said, well, you can, because it's exactly the same chassis as the diesel NV 200. But it's not been type approved and it could invalidate your, your, your insurance. Mm. And I'd say all of them are gone. I'm not bothered, just fit it with a tow bar. And they're telling no problem at all. So what are the other market segments? Uh, no, no let, me, let me rephrase that. I was reading something earlier on today that one of the constraints in, in EVs is actually the supply because they could basically, the demand is there, they could basically sell as many as they can make and it's the supply that's the bottleneck. So if that's the case... Should they be? Should manufacturers be looking at um, upping the supply for the models that they currently have, or should they be saying, right? Well, you know, we've got the I Paces and the Honda E's and the MGs and SEVs. Should we now be looking at expanding the range and diverting our supply towards a seven-seater, an eight-seater, something that's got a large towing capacity, something that's not an SUV, something that's you know, the little two-seater sports car. Is is there a case to say that that's possibly what manufacturers should be looking at? I, I don't think they can. I think they've got such a legacy of internal combustion engines around their necks that they can't just make that switch because overnight their income stream would, would drop. I think Robert made the point quite well a few times. You know, they're a little bit like drug addicts. They've got to wean themselves off fossil-burning engines and they're, they're finding that tough. You only, but you look at the likes of Tesla, they've got none of that legacy holding them back. 
and they can't make Model 3s fast enough. Yeah. I know they're in a different league, but it just illustrates the point that as much as manufacturers might say they want to go down the Evry route, financially they just can't make the switch overnight because it's just not viable for them financially. We're certainly seeing a lot of SUVs now. I mean, that 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 has changed because that was levelled at, at the sort of EV sector a couple of years ago. Where are the SUVs? And now there's a plethora of them. It started with the very, very good compact SUVs like the Kona and, and, and then the Nero. Uh, and Robert uh, on Fully Charged was talking about the Nissan Araya only, only last week. And you can see a lot of those coming through. But of course, that is dictated by the fact that SUVs is, is generally the biggest segment because yeah. they've they push that very hard because it's more metal, more fuel, you know, and, and so that's been very successful. The one we constantly get asked about is estate cars, constantly get asked yeah. about about that. And that there are signs, but actually when you've got an electric vehicle and you've got an efficiency to think of, I think the estate car shape is is fantastic. So I think we'll see mm-hmm. some really good estate cars come through, but it, it, it feels like it feels like slow going. It does feel like by 2022, 2023, 2024, we'll have most of these little pockets, different segments, uh, sort of full, full but I, I totally agree with Jonathan. They, they're in a no-win situation, the car manufacturers. It's incredibly difficult to, to do this, given the baggage they've got and the fact that they're facing, looking backwards and saying, well, you know, are we just cannibalizing our, our core business here? But at the end of the day, if, if, for example, the UK government moved to 2030 or 2032 as a, a date for banning the sale of new um, fossil fuels, they're going to have to bite that bullet and, and take that hit, aren't they? We think bite the bullet early. That's that's the kind of the the thing. It's about being uh, being bold. We started off this podcast talking about being bold. And I think really, if you're at the front end, you know, it's going to be painful. Um, but if you're at the back, it's going to be much, much worse. And uh, I think we always praise manufacturers when they really go for it. You know, I mean, I had an i3. That was my first car. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, BMW haven't really come to the party with anything new since that. And I think that, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 2013, the first i3, something like yeah, that. that's right, yeah. Seven long years. So, you know, we'd be the first ones to say, bravo, but you've got to be single-minded, haven't you? We've seen quite a lot of schizophrenia from the car companies where one minute they're, they're you know, we're really pro-electric and, and the next minute they're, seem to be pulling away there's tensions at vw you can see it there's apparently tensions at, uh, at volvo between uh Geely, the parent company and, and volvo and you can see that in in, in most of them it, it's really really difficult but I, I would just say if anyone ever listens to any of us just <laughs> being bold you know? but obviously when it's one man making a decision which seemingly is often the case over at uh at Tesla or maybe to pick it on uh, our day over at Rivian, you know, it, it, it is easier, I think, to force these decisions through when it's a, a committee making these decisions much, much more complex. Yeah. Yeah. Jill? Yeah, again, that word bold. So I was just thinking of Rivian actually there um, and thinking that Rivian is bold and beautiful um, and their pickup truck, of course, which is going into production next year will be very exciting, I think. But is there an opportunity for um, perhaps a European manufacturer to bring something onto the market that is affordable in terms of, you know, a backy, a pickup truck that's that's fully electric? Because I think that could be quite interesting. Definitely. We may or may not be doing an episode on arrival soon. So if, you, uh-huh. if you're aware of them, um, they are akin to akin to Rivian uh, in terms of they're building their own kind of their own kind of platform and they'd be working with with uh, 
other parties. And then there's an interesting Israeli company called uh, Re. RWE, uh, who are also doing you know fantastic stuff with kind of platforms, and they'll be building vehicles for for others. And if you look at what's happened with with Polestar recently, obviously that's a part of the Volvo family, part of the, the Geely family. And actually, it's interesting to see what 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 they're doing. But we we need more of that at that affordable level. Again, that, when people say to me, "When's the the ten thousand pound or the fifteen thousand pound electric vehicle coming along?" I have to say, I'm quite embarrassed to say I can't really offer them much comfort apart from to send them to eco cars what i do find well i was going to say fascinating but a little disturbing is you've got companies like vw and they've obviously made a decision that they're going to manufacture a range of electric vehicles you've got the you know the usual suspects that we've talked about already the nissans and the renaults but you know one of the largest car manufacturers in the world ford has been strangely silent when it comes to that that's a bit strange (laughs) it is um i have a a friend colleague should i say who was quite high up in ford he's now moved over to uh, general motors and um, I sort of asked him about this and he said, you know, I'm much more comfortable with what General Motors are doing than I ever was with um, the strategic direction that Ford are taking. And I can see a point in the not too distant future where a company like Ford will start to become irrelevant. We're, we're not, sorry. I was going to say, when uh, the best they've been offering on the MEB platform is, um, you know, a um, self-charging hybrid um it's uh and and the cost as well i mean i've seen them on the mondeo hybrid as well and the cost of those things is just astronomical it's it's just going to put people off and ford is ford along with volkswagen are probably one of the most popular brands out there in the uk you know in terms of fleet cars as well as personal transport so it's very much um going to be a case of they may fall out of favor for vw instead where vw are making the progress yeah totally agree totally agree i think one of the not good signs is the new uh, volkswagen group so skoda volkswagen and seat with the new eup and their different versions i think the cheapest mm-hmm. is the seat coming in at seventeen thousand. Mm-hmm. um i think that's the cheapest brand new ev on the market and I believe they're all sold. Um, okay, it's, it's sort of basic and it's not got all the toys on, but it's got a fantastic range. And again, I think that's just another good sign that the prices are dropping for new EVs that are proper four-door cars. And you could see that being very popular in the second-hand market a few years down the line, and hopefully more people will be able to afford that type of vehicle through yourself. Yeah. yeah. Right. I want to talk about the future of EV charging. Now, having an accessible working charging setup is absolutely crucial to EV uptake. I mean, if we look as an example, as I said earlier, at the success of the Tesla supercharging network, that there still isn't any other network remotely close to it in terms of coverage, cost, and ease of use. But what will all this look like as more and more EVs hit our roads? At the moment, for example, you've got rapid chargers, in locations such as pub car parks, park and rides, Starbucks, 
charging companies are getting in with countrywide chains such as Marston's, McDonald's, Miller and Carter, and up in the Lake District, Booth's, people like that. And they're installing at their locations. But you then look at companies such as BP Chargemaster and Shell, and they're adding them to their petrol stations. GridServe is looking at hubs as their business model. How do we see the rollout of charging in the next few years? Will fast and destination charging dominate? Or are we going to be looking at more and more high power chargers? What's what's the general thought on that? I think there's a um, an option for both, depending on the area you live in. My big example would be the maybe not so green city of Brighton. Very much Victorian streets, you know, parking at premium. You're lucky if you can get car park on the road you live in. You know, you may have one electric blue charger on each road, which admittedly has been a massive increase in charges in the past year. But if you're looking for everyone to move to EV, you're probably going to need some faster charging spots just outside the city to encourage the EV uptake because people know they're not going to be able to get on the charger when they want to, such as overnight when they're you know, not using their vehicle. Is that not indicating that potentially we need fewer and f- or we in places like Brighton you can't put in as many destination charges or, or uh, you know the seven kilowatts so we therefore need more 50 kilowatts 65 kilowatts 120 kilowatts 150 kilowatts yes I think um, certainly the sort of the charge hub model that grid server looking at would would be ideal for somewhere like that maybe obviously Brighton's right at the end of a major trunk road and motorway so somewhere close to the end of that motorway would be perfect for people that actually live in the city and as you say with 50 kilowatt plus chargers. If, if I can just mention Norway it's good to look at other countries that are much further ahead than the UK. I know my good friend Ewan McTurk who does a brilliant YouTube channel called Plug Life TV he went over to Oslo And in one of his videos, he's in his apartment window counting the number of EVs that are going past his his hotel window. And it was something like eight out of 10 cars were electric. And as he drove around, yes, there were some rapid charging hubs with a dozen rapids. None of them were being used. And he saw countless small-sized battery EVs parked on the side of the street, not plugged in. And it was a real eye-opener to him and me when I watched his video, the fact that people with small-range electric vehicles don't always want to be plugged in. And it's just interesting to see how human behaviour does work where there is great EV uptake, such as in Norway. It doesn't seem to be an issue about having a charger you know, connected to your lamppost and on every street. Whether the Norwegians think differently to us British, I don't know. But it was interesting to watch. I'd be interested to know what their tra- public transport's like as well outside of the cities, like like Oslo. So if they wanted to go on a trip to another city elsewhere in the country, are they going to take their short-range EV or are they going to jump on a train? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, The whole way we get around has to be looked at. And we have to get away from this fact that we, we need to have our own set of wheels. I think that's come from years and years of sort of overpriced public transport and unreliable public transport. And of course, now not very green public transport in a lot of cases. Yeah. 
just sort of wrapping this back around to charging itself, uh, many, many years ago when I was a slip of a lad, I used to uh, work in an attended service petrol station. And at that point, and we're talking 40-odd 40, 40 years ago, the profit on a gallon of petrol, because we sold them in gallons at that point, not uh, not litres, was minuscule. And the pr- the profit that the petrol station made was on the other things that were sold. And that's still the case today. But if we then look at charging, the profit on the charging is on the actual price of the electricity. Whereas if we go to something like the grid serve model, where you've got lots and lots of charges, and you've got people who are going to be there for 15, 20, 30, 45 plus minutes. Is there a case to say the price of the charging might be reduced, but we've then also got, I think he's looking at putting in a Marks and Spencers type thing at each or a Costa coffee at each thing. Is there a case to say that the profit will then be made outside the actual charging itself and that could be used to reduce the price of charge at a, a hub? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, certainly a lot of the, the charge points in Scotland are quite remote and you, you've not got any facilities, um, toilets, food or anything. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a really good idea what, what would serve our, our, um, our building. So, yeah, definitely should follow in, in other charge points. And it's a bit like the service centre model. Um, so, for example, if you go to services, you know that on a major trunk road there's going to be demand for those items so you know they obviously uh add a markup on that knowing that people will pay that money for those other items and you know people still do go and fill up at service stations but i imagine not as much because they don't need to but then they probably make a lot more profit from their overpriced burger king or other slogan inserted here indeed indeed any further thoughts on uh the future of charging is it uh you know what well, where would we like to see it in five years ten years time i would certainly like the contactless model to have made progress i think um you said it before gary a very good example of where that would be very useful would be in a taxi rank um so where you've got the conductive charging and where a taxi is waiting at a taxi rank and can charge contactlessly um without having to plug in I believe there's a fully charged episode about that. I could be wrong. I think it was on the podcast. Uh, they were interviewing somebody on that. I quite like the the Dundees. Um, they put charge points in multi-storey car parks. That seems quite a good idea. Uh, so basically, you know, people can charge up during the day, and then uh, people that live nearby can leave the car plugged in overnight if they don't have a driveway. So. I can see uh, charging at home for those that have got a drive becoming more popular. We've started to see business models from various electric companies offering to pay you to charge at certain times. So I think there's an exciting project about to start on Orkney called Reflex. Where basically, if we're getting up to a 1,000 EVs on the island, that will help in a massive way to balance the grid because we often have too much electricity it can't go anywhere, so we end up having to turn turbines off. So I think in five years' time, we'll see people seeing a vehicle not as a means to get from A to B, but a battery storage unit will actually earn you money. So I think um, we've got exciting things happening in the EV world, and 
home energy. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think we're it's, it's it will be a little bit like the energy mix. You know, we need a mix of, of energy, don't we? And we we will need, and we're seeing more and more a mix of charging solutions to suit people's needs. So if you if you can park at home overnight, then probably home charging is going to be most suitable for you. Um, and as you say, with certain energy suppliers now and, and smart charger providers, then you can actually get paid to charge in effect. But then there's also lots of new technologies that are really exciting, like wireless charging, um, you know, vehicle to grid. And there's a lot of work being done in those areas as well. So, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely one to watch. I think the innovation opportunities are, are pretty great. I think it's great for people to get away from the thinking of I go to a place to fill with fuel, like a petrol station, yeah. and they automatically think, well, I need to go somewhere to fill up my electric car. But when you start to tactfully explain to them that you can do it whilst you sleep, or you can do it off your solar panels or your wind turbine, and it, it's getting people to think differently in a big way and think different to what we've been doing for the last 100 years when it comes to fueling our vehicles. I think that's that's quite an quite an interesting challenge to make people think differently. And I think if we were to sort of pick up the um, the keyword that's come through on this podcast more than once, it's you know that's the bold thing to do, isn't it? You know to to re-educate a large amount of the of the population to say this is how you've done it for as long as you've been driving, yeah, and this is how it needs to happen in the future. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's time to share a cool, renewable or EV thing with the listeners. Did anybody bring a cool thing? I believe you've got something, Heather, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty cool, but uh, Renault has, um, but I think they've actually delivered over 1,100 electric Zoes from car subscription service Onto. They were formerly known as, uh, is it Evizy? Not sure how you pronounce it. Evizy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's the biggest order, I think, for Zoe in the UK. Um, so the Evizy, or Onto as it's called now, offer all inclusive electric car subscriptions with no long term commitment. So it's actually quite an ideal way for people to try out an electric vehicle uh, before they make a long term decision to purchase one. So, yeah, that's pretty cool that the, the biggest order of Zoe's. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that their subscription model also includes sort of insurance and servicing yeah. and it's all in? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not bad. Not bad. Leanne, your cool thing, please. Well, it would seem that Nissan have seen the light. Um, so, with the Nissan Aria, albeit the uh, top spec model, coming with not just 130 kilowatt CCS, but also 22 kilowatt AC, towing capacity, and also liquid cooled batteries. <laughs> Rapid gate will be a thing of the past. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, anybody else come up with a, a cool thing? Uh, mine's not car related. It hit the, well, I found it this morning and put it on Twitter. This electric ferry in Sweden. Oh, yeah. It's been, you know, there's been lots of talk of ships and, you know, this is coming out and that's coming out. This has been running for 12 months and it's been absolutely brilliant and no issues. I think it does a 22-mile trip one way and 22 miles back. They've never run out of electricity. It's working great. And their projected payback or where it could be the same price as it, as it would have been a diesel, so price parity, if you like, was between year five and year eight. And 
these ferries, like the ferries up here on Orkney, these have been running 35, 30, 35 years. That's the average lifespan. So for this passenger ferry that carries, I think it was up to 30 vehicles, which is similar to the ones we have up here on the Northern Isles, the, the, it'll be cost efficient by year five or year eight. I think that is brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah. It is spectacular. Very, very impressive. Yeah. Jill? So if I can just grab another result from EVA England survey on the phase out date of sales of new petrol and diesel cars and vans. So 82% of all survey participants believe that the phase out date should be moved to a date earlier than 2035. So that's quite exciting to hear. Fantastic. Dan, do you have anything? I do. Uh, fully charged is doing something new called fully charged cities. And we're actually trying to inspire cities and towns around the world to A, to show off the progress that they're making in clean energy and electric vehicles, but also to encourage others to follow suit. So we had a great time in Dundee around this time last year. And we talked about electric taxis and uh, electric car charging on the top of uh, car parks. And they've got a a visionary group of leaders up in up in Dundee, um, and we thought it'd be fantastic to you know share that story around the world. And I know from speaking to Fraser up there, actually, it opened a lot of doors for for them. And from our perspective, talking about Norway as Jonathan just was, and the progress they've 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 had there. Talking about all the electric buses in Shenzhen in China, all the electric bikes in Utrecht in, in the Netherlands. That actually gets other cities and other towns to uh, to say it is possible, and they're actually surprisingly competitive with each other. So we're really excited about hopefully, in addition to the episodes that we run, uh, inspiring some some meaningful change at that level as well. Brilliant. So Milton Keynes on your list? Of course, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, people have got to nominate themselves, but yeah, I mean, in the UK. <laughs> We've had, we've it's the had, best city I've been to. Kings <laughs> is a is a is a great example. There's some some good ones in the UK. I get killed if I don't mention everyone, but Nottingham's another another leader mm-hmm. uh, in, in England. Uh, and then we've had it. We've had interest so far from uh, from California, from New Zealand, from from Australia. Uh, we're kind of reaching around the world to get other cities to show what they're doing because I don't think there's ever been a better time to actually look at how cities and towns operate. Uh, and say, actually, let's have that road back and let's put in the cycle path or, or let's improve our public transport or to encourage active transport, running and walking. And uh, we're hugely passionate about electric vehicles, but it's electric vehicles of all shapes and sizes. And what I particularly like about that is there are a lot of towns and cities around the world that are probably thinking, well, you know, it's not for us. But when they look and see some of the other the other towns and cities that are making a success of it, that changes their mindset and suddenly you've got a bit of a groundswell and it sort of snowballs from there. We're going for a kind of a Eurovision kind of thing. It'll be the biggest <laughs> event on the planet one day. I mean, you know, I'm talking about making big promises that hopefully Robert can keep. My cool thing is a car cover with solar PV cells built in that can recharge your batteries while parked. The idea of using solar to charge your vehicles isn't new. I mean, Jonathan's been doing it for quite some time up in Orkney. But this new car cover developed by a French company, Armour, has very lightweight solar panels built into it, making it more practical than rooftop solar, albeit with a much reduced capacity. The panels themselves weigh only about six times the weight of the equivalent area of paper. And a four square metre total PV coverage can add about 9.3 miles per day, 
with an aim to double that within three years based on eight hours of outside exposure. For many people, using this while their car is parked in the office will completely cover their commute at zero cost for the provided power, especially if they live in high sun regions such as Arizona, California, Dubai, or pretty much anywhere in Australia. Unfortunately, we have no indication of price at the moment. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Many, many thanks to Leanne, Jill, Heather, Dan, and Jonathan for participating in this roundtable discussion. Links to their social media pages are in the show notes. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account, Musings EV. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. As I said at the top of the show, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise our visibility and extend our reach in search engines. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, his parents live on a farm and they tend to try and celebrate Christmas in quite a novel way. I asked him what's the one thing they have that's so different from a normal Christmas. He told me... Glitter amongst the chicken feed, really. Thank you everybody for participating and thanks to everybody here for listening. Bye-bye.